Welcome to episode 53 of the Women of the Military podcast. This is the last episode for season one. I'll be doing two bonus episodes between now and season two, which will start the first Tuesday in January. So you can be looking forward to those over the Christmas break. And I'm really excited for everything that's happened in the past year. And I'm so thankful for everyone who has taken time to listen or to share with their friends about Women of the Military podcast. It's been an exciting year, and I can't wait for next year and more stories to be shared. So my guest this week is Maureen Elias. She served in the Army for five years as a counterintelligence agent. She and I talked a lot about what her time in the military being a dual military couple was like and the challenges that she faced as not only being married to someone in the military, but also being a mom of two young children. So you really need to take a listen if you are considering joining the military and your spouse is in, or if you're just curious to hear what the challenges are like for military to military, also known as mill-to-mill couples face, and why sometimes one part of the couple decides to get out. So I think you'll really enjoy this week. There's a lot of laughter and a lot of good stories, and I really enjoyed listening and talking to Maureen. You're listening to the Women of the Military podcast, where we share the stories of female service members and how the military touched their lives. I'm your host, military veteran, military spouse, and mom, Amanda Huffman. My goal is to find the heart of the story and uncover issues women face while serving in the military. If you want to be encouraged by the stories of military women and be inspired to change the world, keep tuned for this latest episode of Women of the Military. Maureen served in the U.S. Army from 2001 to 2006 as a counterintelligent agent. She met and married the love of her life while in advanced individual training, and they just celebrated their 18-year anniversary. Congratulations. Thank you. And they have three beautiful children. Welcome to the show. I'm really excited to hear a little bit more about your military experience. Thank you, Amanda. Thank you so much for the opportunity and the work that you're doing to help elevate the voices of women veterans. Uh, When I first heard about your podcast, I was super excited. So it's really an honor to have an opportunity to participate. Well, I'm excited to have you here. Let's dive in with why did you decide to join the military? So it's actually, it's a really interesting story. Both my grandfather and my step-grandfather served in the military, but they did so before I was ever born. So I wasn't really exposed to military life other than like maybe my grandpa would take me to the officer's club for dinner or um, we'd go shopping at the BX or PX. But when I graduated high school, I was only 17 and I thought, you know, I, I might like to give this a try. So I tried to join the Navy. But I was too young. I was only 17 and my mother refused to to sign the paperwork. So I tried college, which did not work out well. (laughs) Then I tried a litany of jobs. I worked at a movie theater. I was managing a Dairy Queen. I made airplane parts. I drove an armored car. But always in the back of my mind, there was this desire to join the military. And I can remember the exact moment when I was like, okay, I'm definitely going to join was when I was at the Vietnam Veterans Memorial in Washington, D.C., as I walked past this seemingly endless list of names of those who had lost their lives in service to our country, 
I knew that I too wanted to have that opportunity to serve. And then the next day I toured the FBI headquarters and I was like, ooh, this is what I want to do. But I hadn't done well in college. And so you can only join the FBI if you have a four-year degree. But then they told me that if I served as a counterintelligence agent for five years in the military, they would waive the education requirement. So I got back home to Washington State where I'm from and I walked into the recruiting station and I was like, I'm ready to sign up. And they just sat there and looked at me. <laughs> and so I said it again. I was like, I'm ready to join the army. Who do I talk to about signing up? And they started looking at each other like they were being punked or something because they just don't think that they, that they believed me. So I had to say it like four times before someone actually got up and spoke to me. And uh, so it was pretty funny. And 10 days later, I had sold or given away almost everything I'd owned. I'd given up my my business, which was uh, as a personal vocal coach and uh, closed down my, my apartment so that I could get on a plane and go to South Carolina to basic training. Because it was such a short window when I got to reception, I was such a hot mess. It was hilarious. I remember I came down the stairs after our uniform issue. And I had on like my winter BDU pants and my sneakers and my PT shirt and my summer BDU blouse and it was unbuttoned. And I swear the drill sergeant's head like rotated 360 degrees and she, they started spewing vomit and she was like, what is wrong with you, Private? <laughs> and it was at that point that I first started questioning like, well, maybe this wasn't exactly what I wanted to do, <laughs> but it turned out to be great. So kind of funny. That's crazy how quickly you went in I'm here and then they were like okay here you go there wasn't much time to question the decision but I knew that that was exactly what I wanted to do so I didn't need time to question it and I just was relooking and so you joined in 2001 when what month was it it was January so I'm, I'm considered a pre 9-11 vet as well as a post 9-11 so I joined a very different military at the time you know it was it was all about like, do you want to travel? Do you want to see the world? And what is your motivating factor for joining the service? And for me, it was just, I want to join the service. I want to be a part of this. Um, and they kept trying to tell me, well, like, maybe it's money. And I was like, no, I just want to join the service. And, you know, stop telling me why I want to join and just sign me up. <laughs> so It was different than at the end of 2001, when a lot of people started joining. So that's probably why the 10 days or whatever. They were like, oh, we've got her. Let's get her. <laughs> so, and you were able to get the job that you wanted? Yeah. So it was, um, it was a bit of a, a battle to get it. So when I went in, I told them like, I want to do this specific job. I want to be a counterintelligence agent. And they were like, well, what about being an analyst or what about doing this? And I was like, no, if, if, if you're not going to give me this job, I'll go to one of the other branches. I did well enough on my ASVAB. I can go wherever I want but you're the only service that gives specific job assignments. And so they were like, oh, well, have you thought about this? And I was like, I got out of my chair and I was like, you know what? I'm just going to go if you guys aren't going to. And then they were like, whoa, wait, 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 come back, come back. Let's, let's do a security interview. <laughs> and so I went and did my security interview and I had been born and raised in a religion that was very um, strict. And so there really wasn't a whole lot to report. And so I was out of my interview in like five minutes which to them thought I had failed. But then the lady came out and they were like, she's good to go. So they signed me up. That's cool. And I think that's good if you want to do something and you like know that's the job you want to do, then you kind of have to do that. You have to be willing to be like, okay, well, I'll just go somewhere else and play hardball and, you know, yeah. see, see, the, see what, see what they're really up to. And so that's, that's good that you got the job that you wanted. So did you deploy while you were in the Army? I did not. Unfortunately, the opportunity for counterintelligence agents to deploy was pretty rare. 
And when they did come up, uh, usually a MISEP, which is like the civilian equivalent of a counterintelligence service member, would take that assignment because it usually came with a pretty nice stipend. However, I did volunteer every time. Like my hand was one of the first ones up, please send me, please send me. But as a woman, as a counterintelligence agent, and as a young mother, I was always the last on the list. So I never did get that opportunity. So you just said young mother. So when you got married or you met you met your husband at AIT, which is what Advanced Individual Training acronym is. <laughs> when did you guys get married? So we are, I joke that we're kind of legendary because we actually had an AIT wedding. So <laughs> we, we went to the military chaplain's office. Uh, we asked our drill sergeant if we could. And we sat down in his office and we were like, we've been dating for a while. We really like how this is looking and we'd like to go ahead and get married because we figure if we aren't, we're going to get stationed in very different areas. And his first answer was, I don't do AIT marriages. <laughs> of course, I was like, well, uh, what? but my husband was like, well, well, just wait a minute. Like, we're both a little older. We've already lived on our own. We've already had like our first love. So we're not, you know, these 18 year olds that are fresh out of our mom and dad's house. We both joined a little later in age. And so after my husband kind of coerced him into marrying us, he did require that we go through premarital counseling with him. Um, and I'm glad that he did because a lot of the conversations that we had are conversations that probably might have been fights later on in our marriage. Uh, but because we had gone through the, the counseling, we'd already had those discussions before going into um, the marriage. So we literally had a wedding at the little annex right next to our AIT quarters. And uh, my drill sergeant was there. Our company commander was there. A lot of the members of our platoon were there. And yeah, so we had like a legit AIT marriage. And, and since then, of course, they've changed policy. So you can't do that. So I joke that like, I changed policy at AIT. <laughs> Oh, now you can't get married at AIT? I don't, I don't believe so, no. I mean, a lot of people would run off to Vegas and do it, but we, we did it at the, the... Actually, at the chapel on yeah. the base, on the fort. I'm Air Force. I say the wrong things. I'll forgive you. You guys got married, and were you able to get a joint spouse assignment? So we did. We were both assigned to Germany. However, we did find out if we hadn't gotten married, they were going to send him to Italy and me to Belgium. And I think that would have been really hard for our relationship to have withstood because that's a pretty difficult at the time especially like cell phones weren't what they were today and so it would have been really hard to try to communicate but because we got married we ended up both being stationed in the same place in germany how exciting so what was it like to be overseas in germany for your first assignment so i come from a very close very huge family i'm number three of 11 children and so for me it felt like i was being ripped away from my family but the opportunity to serve in Germany opened up so many other windows of opportunity for me. Like the job that I got to do was was really exciting. And, and, you know, it's not when people hear counterintelligence agent, they think like James Bond, and it's way less exciting than that. But because I was in Germany, there was all of this terrorism activity and 9-11 had just happened. So everyone was, their hair was on fire. And so there was always work to do and be done. And, and the sense of urgency that for me was really exciting. Um, and, and kept me going throughout the day. But being in Germany also meant that as a newlywed, we were far enough away from our families that I think our marriage really sat a good chance because we had to just totally focus on each other in order to survive what we were going through because it was also our very first duty station. And so as we learned about each other and we learned about what we were going through, it really kind of cemented our, our marriage 
and has helped us withstand a lot of different things. And then Germany, of course, gave us the opportunity to travel all over Europe. And so it's really fun to have said, you know, I went shopping for Polish pottery in Poland, and I went down to Italy and hung out in Rome for a while, and I went to France and fell in love with Strasbourg, and we went to Paris and watched a beating on the street. Like it was, the, the experience was, was pretty cool, an opportunity we don't usually get as an everyday civilian in America. How long were you guys in Germany? We were in Germany for three years. And did you guys have kids in Germany or? I did. I had both my son and my daughter in Germany. So it was, you know, I, I made sure that I had them on a military installation because I had heard rumors that in the German hospitals, they aren't as generous with their medications when it comes to having babies. And so when I went in to have my first son at the Heidelberg Hospital, I was ready for those those good medications to make sure that I didn't feel a whole lot of the labor. And we only had one anesthesiologist at the hospital. And so as, as my labor started, it was like, oh, I can handle this, come back later. Well, he never did because he was in surgery with someone else. And so by the time it he came back to visit me, it was time to push and it was too late. And I was like, no, come back. I really want those medications. So you ended up having a natural birth, not really on purpose, just because exactly. you were so busy. Natural birth. <laughs> Did you have a natural birth with a second too? Oh, heck no. With her, as soon as the anesthesiologist <laughs> came in, I was like, put that needle in my back. I am ready to not feel anything. <laughs> That's funny. So what was it like to be a new mom and kind of a new newly married person and be living in a foreign country? Oof, it's so <laughs> balancing motherhood and military service was super challenging. When I got pregnant with the first, our first with our son, you know, you have to make the hardest choice of your life, and that is whether to stay in or get out. And, you know, as someone who joined the military because I really wanted to be in the military, this was a horrific choice for me because I was choosing between the career I loved and the baby I was going to have. But my husband and I had the conversation and we figured that we would be able to balance, you know, we'd have one kid and we could balance that one kid between our two careers. But then, you know, very quickly, I, I joke that my kids are Irish twins because I think Michael was six months old or younger when I became pregnant with my second. It became a lot more difficult. One of my favorite stories that I love to tell is uh, when I was pregnant with my second, I hit, we were really poor at the time. And I had just splurged and bought a pint of Ben and Jerry's Chunky Monkey ice cream. And um, I was getting ready to leave the base and the, the post had been locked down. And I was like, what's going on? So I went up and asked the gate guard and he was like, oh, we have a suspected armed suspect running around the gate, the, the concern somewhere. And I was like, not a problem. Where are the MPs? And so I drove over to where the MPs were. And this whole time in my head, I'm like, this needs to hurry. I have ice cream melting in my car. And so I drove over to the MPs and I got a description of what he looked like and what weapons he was carrying. And they suspected that he had a pistol and a shotgun. And so I just started, I had my badge and my credentials. I made a quick call to my boss. Hey, just want to let you know, there's a suspect on base. I'm going to hunt him down and bring him in so I can go home. <laughs> and, and I did. And I brought him to the MPs and handed him over and went home and enjoyed my slightly soupy ice cream. <laughs> but because I was pregnant at the time, they were uncomfortable with me having placed the baby in danger, even though it was a part of my job. I didn't do anything that was irregular. Um, and so I got put on desk duty for the rest of that pregnancy. <laughs> wow, that's crazy. So, and there wasn't, you know, the military was not quite as baby friendly as they are now. And so I remember um, with my first son sitting in the bathroom that we had, which had like an open sewer drain, it smelled terrible, you know, and it's sitting on the toilet pumping milk so that he would have something to eat when I got home. And, you know, people would come in next to me and do the most horrific things in the bathroom. It would smell terrible. And I'm just like, this is awful. 
another time I was due to pump. It was just about time. And the first sergeant called a meeting and I was like, I just need like five or 10 minutes and then I can come in the meeting. He's like, no, 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 this meeting is happening right now. And I was like, okay. So I went into the meeting and I was taking notes and about halfway through my milk let down. And, you know, at first I thought it would be okay, but then eventually, you know, it was a very quiet meeting. Something important had happened and you could hear like the drip, drip, drip of the milk from me onto the floor. <laughs> And we would just see the first sergeant, just like the red, like go, go, climbing from his chin all the way up to the top of his head. But, you know, what can we do? We're in a meeting. So after it was over, he was like, anytime I'm going to have a meeting, I promise you, I will give you five to 10 minutes to go take care of that business because I don't ever want to have that again. Right. <laughs> okay. He's like, and then another one of my favorite stories about nursing while being on active duty is I was pumping a lot of milk. And so rather than storing it in bottles, I started in like a quart container. And my commander came in one day with a cup of coffee. And he's like, I don't know what kind of creamer you have in that fridge, but that stuff is awesome. And I, and I froze for a minute because I was like, do I tell him? And so finally I did. I was like, sir, that's uh, breast milk. And he just he turned green and he just froze in place. And then he just kind of turned and walked down. And at the door, he turned around and he took another sip. And he was like, you should market that stuff. And just left. <laughs> Oh, the things. That's hilarious. Oh, that's so funny. It was frustrating too, because when you're pregnant, the military does kind of treat you like you're flagged. You know, you aren't able to do some of the things that you normally could do because of the pregnancy. And so there was a lot of classes that I couldn't attend. There were courses that I wanted to go to that um, because of the limitations on hours that you have, I couldn't attend. I couldn't go to PLDC until after I'd had the baby, which really kind of held my career up a little bit versus my husband who didn't have to wait you know, for a baby to be born in order to go to PLDC. When I was placed on desk duty and they put me in a job, uh, which was more like HR centered, and I'd asked for some training because I was like, this isn't what I know, you know, and it's a lot of forms. Uh, Could I please get some training? And I couldn't get any, I couldn't get any. So finally I went to my sergeant and I was like, I really need some training in order to be efficient or effective at this job. And he turns to me and he's like, oh, you're just emotional because you're breastfeeding. (laughs) I was like... No, I'm not. (laughs) I'm frustrated because you're not giving me the training I need to take care of these troops. So luckily we had a sergeant first class. Her name was Selena Jones, who found out and she was like, oh, heck no, and took care of the situation. And I got all the training that I needed. But, you know, being pregnant and in the service does present some challenges. You know, they aren't quite ready to to support us in the way that we need when it comes to choosing to have a family. That's very true. I think it's gotten a lot better, but they're still work to do. Yes, there's a long way to go. It's definitely better. You know, now I I hear they have pumping rooms and stuff. So that's got to be nicer than the toilet. (laughs) Right, for sure. So after Germany, where did you guys go? Monterey, California. We were both going to DLI to learn Korean. That sounds awesome. It was really hard. (laughs) Monterey, but Korean. Yeah, that's a lot of work. Yeah, Monterey was beautiful. It's probably one of the most beautiful places that we lived. Um, But we had, you know, we we showed up our first week at DLI and the sergeant who met us had just gone through this horrible divorce. And she turns to us and she's like, you two are married? And I was like, yeah. And she's like, I'm going to make it my personal mission to make sure your marriage does not survive DLI. And we were both like, what the heck? (laughs) Oh my goodness. Yeah. That's that's horrible. (laughs) 
obviously she wasn't successful, thankfully, but what was it like to be in that type of situation? It was really uncomfortable. Actually, I was one of the only female NCOs at DLI. And at the time they integrated the classes. So it was all the, I, I think they called us retrainees. I don't remember all of us that had already been in service along with the IE tiers. And it was frustrating because we weren't allowed to socialize with them, but we were put in charge of them. But we didn't have any real authority to to do anything if our soldiers did anything wrong. You know, you couldn't drop them. You couldn't, there really a whole lot of the different punishments that we would normally use in the regular military, you couldn't use. And so it left us feeling very flaccid and frustrated because we didn't have the tools that we needed in order to lead effectively. And being the only female NCO made things even more fun because they did a lot of urine tests, you know, for drugs. And being the only female NCO, guess who got to go all the time and see, you know, females go potty every morning. That was not my favorite duty. And there, it has to be a female to see a female. Yep. So you're the only one. So you yep. just, instead of like the guys that rotated, yep. it was you. Yeah, <laughs> my husband loved it because it meant he got out of it because he had to stay home with our kids. But <laughs> And now a word from our sponsor. Is your family going to be okay financially if you die? As you prepare to transition out of the military, don't forget to look over your life insurance needs. Hey there, I'm Melissa Skur, Coast Guard spouse and experienced insurance agent. As the owner of Insure the Heroes, Inc., an independent term life insurance brokerage, I help military families past and present, as well as the general public, put together life insurance plans that fit their needs and budget. Separating from the service is a hectic time. Many veterans struggle with the decision of whether or not to purchase the SPP in the VG a lot. It's a huge decision and the tax classes don't always help. The veteran's life insurance benefit should be your last resort for life insurance continuation. Plus, it's not available for spouses. Securing the right amount of life insurance is how you can protect your home front should you pass away prematurely. Remember, life insurance isn't for you. It's for the ones you leave behind. Head on over to my website at insuretheheroes.com for a no obligation quote or to book a complimentary call. If you prefer, you can dial me directly at 844-514-LIFE. Thanks, Melissa. Let's get back to the show. What was it like to be dual military for your career? You know, it, it had some challenges, but it was also really fun. You know, be, being an AIT marriage, we, we knew that we were facing some pretty high statistics. The divorce rate is like, what, 93%. But once we were in the Army, it was always interesting because we were referred to as Elias male and Elias female because we're almost always the same rank which always highlighted the, the fact that I was a woman and, and I wasn't always comfortable with that. Um, but it was really nice having a spouse who knew what I was going through. You know, he spoke the language. We wore the same uniform. We often shared uniform pieces. Like if, if I'd gone to the field and then I needed to go to somewhere and have my stuff clean, I'd just borrow his. That, that was nice. Um, but it was also frustrating because we were the same MOS or um, job skill that they wouldn't allow us to serve together. And so one of us always had to go do something that wasn't related to our career field in order for the other to, to go do it in order to get there on the job experience. Um, one time I remember being so angry was when I finally got promoted to sergeant after my husband, um, the guy who was doing the paperwork told me, he's like, oh, oops, it looks like we accidentally gave all your promotion points to your husband. That's why he got promoted so long ago and why you're finally now getting promoted. <laughs> I was like, what? But he was like, well, it doesn't matter. He's the man of the family. So it's all good. You know, the money is all going into the same household. And I was like, well, 
I see your point, but you know, it would have been nice to have gotten promoted when I earned it. But I do know that, you know, I've heard of other couples that had a very hard time getting stationed together. And we were really lucky that we never did have to like be geographically separated um, while we were in the service. I mean, he'd go away for a week or a month of training. I'd go away for a week, a month of training, um, but we never had to be on separate duty stations. And so that was nice. There were positive things like being able to borrow his uniform. And then there were negative things where, you know, being dual military can be challenging to career progression. Yeah. And just think if like you weren't married, but you had the same last name and like that <laughs> happened to someone else, like that would be even, I mean, not that it was not bad what they did to you, but it's like, oh, well, well, you're getting promoted now. Yeah. It's like, but <laughs> I'm worried about got, it. <laughs> yeah. That's kind of, yeah. That's crazy. <laughs> so why did you decide to leave the military and in 2006? So that was probably one of the hardest decisions that our family has ever had to make. But we realized at the time that something wasn't quite right with our kids. You know, when you compare them to other kids, we, we didn't know what the right words were, but it seemed like they were just kind of extra bratty or just really extra hard to control. And so we felt like at some point we were going to start getting stationed further and further apart as we progressed up our careers. And so one of us should get out and, and stay home with the kids. And bless my husband's heart, he was actually willing to, to be the one to get out. You know, we really did have that conversation. Should it be you? Should it be me? It wasn't just assumed that because I was the woman, it would be me. But because I had been injured at basic training and it had continued to persist, uh, we decided it's probably better off that it be me because it was easier for him to continue to get promoted because he wasn't hurt. And so I went ahead and, and requested a, a medical evaluation and was med boarded very, very quickly. And although I missed being in the service every day and I gave up a career that I loved, I know that I did the right thing because we found out that our older two children had autism. And so because I had gotten out, it allowed me to make them kind of my full-time job. So I was going to like 18 different therapy appointments a week um, with the kids in order to help get them back on track. And now if you knew them, you wouldn't even know they had autism unless you were specifically looking for it. They've really made a lot of progress. So I know that for our family, we've done the right thing and, and I've done the best that I can as a mom, but it was very hard to give up that career that I love. Yeah. And I think it's important that you talked about that it wasn't just like, oh, well, you're the woman, so you get out and all. I like that your husband and you had that conversation. I think with my husband and I, like looking back, it made more sense for me to get out, but there wasn't really any like, what if I stayed in, you know? And I was surprised. I was at a a reception a couple of weeks ago or months ago and someone was like why'd you get out and not your husband and I was like I don't know <laughs> I just got out so that's really cool so your husband is still in the military right yeah he is okay. we have a year and a half to retirement <laughs> almost there no crawl to the finish line so what has it been like to be both a veteran and a military spouse so it's kind of bittersweet you know, I, I see him go off to work every day in his uniform. And if I'm honest, there's a little bit of jealousy in me because that's what I wanted to do. But it it helps that I'm a veteran because I understand the language. I understand the culture. When he starts rattling off all those acronyms, I can acronym right back with him. And I get it. You know, I, I think I kind of have a leg up over civilian military spouses because I understand completely when he says he has to go and we have to cancel our vacations or when I've just bought a home and he's like, oh, sorry, we're moving to another state. Like, I get that he doesn't have that choice because I was in the army and I get that you just don't have that choice. <laughs> civilian spouse, I could find myself fighting against that or being very frustrated with the system. And I think that Another side of, of the veteran military spouse issue is that I constantly have to choose between which identity 
I'm going to wear. I don't get to be a veteran and a military spouse at an event. I'm either the veteran or the military spouse. It's rare, especially even when I take surveys and things. I always Mm -hmm. have to pick which box I'm going to click. Am I a veteran or am I a military spouse? I do definitely raise my voice when I see that happen. And I'm like, hey, what about those of us that are both, you know, and, and usually people will modify their, their surveys accordingly. But um, I think that there's both pluses and, and minuses to, to being both a veteran and a military spouse. And the, the minus for me is, is the strong reminder of that community that I, that I've left that I love. Yeah. Blue Star Families is one that I've taken and they're like, you have to pick. And I'm like, but I'm one person. Right. <laughs> like, the military spouse Like if I pick military spouse, then my veteran part is going to come out. And if I pick veteran, my military spouse is going to come out because that's how my veteran experience is. And so, and I know they're working to change that. Yes. I know there's a, the um, Student Veterans of America had put out their, their student veteran life cycle. And as I started to take it, there wasn't really anywhere in there for those of us that got out for caregiving, whether that be as a parent or some of us get out to be caregivers for our parents or for younger siblings or whatever. And I was like, there's nowhere in that map for that that part of our journeys. And so I know that they've since amended it, but it, I think it's really important for us that wear those multiple hats to to raise our voices whenever mm-hmm. um, whenever we see that so that we can help educate and inform those that are that are doing the questioning. Yeah, I just posted, as we're recording this, I just posted or I submitted an article to military.com and it was because I took a survey for military spouses and I was not happy (laughs) as both a veteran and a military spouse. And I'll put the link in the show notes if you want to read it. But I had to speak up and I had to say something because, and I wrote in the comments everywhere there was a place to write stuff. I was like, this is why I'm mad. (laughs) This is why I don't agree with it. And like, even when there was like a question that I didn't have a comment space, I went and found a place and I was like, this is for question five. (laughs) I told my friend, I was like, I don't think you should have sent me that survey because they're not going to be happy with my answers. Or maybe they will because they'll hear my experience. But I think that's important that we have to speak up and let people know because a lot of people don't realize how many military spouses are veterans and how it kind of changes the dynamics. Mm -hmm. And I think military spouses who are veterans can help military spouses understand what their husbands or their wives are going through just because we have both. And we can let people who are veterans know, like, or service members, like, I know what it's like to be in the service. I also know what it's like to be in a military spouse. Yeah, having that dual role, especially in the work that I do in the advocacy space, being able to wear both hats um, has been really valuable because they bring different perspectives. You know, I'm also a caregiver because I have three kids with special needs. And so I have that dimension that I can add to the conversation. Yeah. So is there anything from your military experience that I missed that you want to talk about? You know, one of the things that that we had talked about earlier, I'd love to talk about was the opportunity I had to be a foster parent in the military. I didn't. So I grew up, um, my mother was a foster mom for like 20 years. And so to me, being a foster parent seemed very, very natural. And so when we moved to Germany, my husband and I immediately filled out the paperwork to become foster parents because they had at our incoming briefing, they had told us that they had a critical shortage. And so, you know, we, we wanted to be that loving home for those children while they're parents were getting their lives back together, whatever was going on got fixed. And so uh, we went through the hoops to become foster parents. And we found out that we were the only foster family for the three concerns around us. And so three weeks after my second daughter was born, we got a call and she was like, we have a four month old baby who needs immediate placement. And you are the only home we have. If you don't take this baby, it's going to go right back to the home where it was hurt. And we were like, so of course we said yes. So they brought the little baby to us. He was four months old at the start of a four day weekend. 
And the social worker dropped the baby off with four bottles of sour milk, a couple of diapers, and said, keep his arm in a sleeve. It hurts a little bit. And that was all we were told. And then she left and we were given no contact information or anyone to call for the whole four-day weekend. The baby screamed all the time. And when he wasn't screaming, he was throwing up. And we were like, what in the world is going on? And he wheezed as if he was on like his dying breath. And we were just like freaking out. We, we just couldn't figure out, you know, why this baby was so upset. And so, you know, between having a newborn and having a one-year-old and having the four-month-old foster baby, there was no sleep. We were a little emotional. And it just so happened that in my husband's everyday duties, he went back to work on Tuesday and he read the police blotter. And in the blotter, he read about a four-month-old baby that had been placed into a foster home that had a broken collarbone, acid reflux, and shaken baby syndrome. <laughs> and we were like, what? <laughs> no one told us any of these things. So we took him straight to the doctor and got him on the right formula and got his arm looked at and got um, some medications to help with his tummy problems and things got better. But it was really hard having three babies under the age of you. And so when I finally went back to work after my maternity leave, my boss at the office kind of kept a close eye on me because I'd been gone for, for quite a while. And the baby kept getting sick. He would throw up at daycare. And the on-post daycare policy was if a baby throws up, they have to stay home for 48 hours. So I'm brand new back from maternity leave in the ACE, which is like the where all the analysts work. That's the desk duty that I was given following my <laughs> chasing down the suspect. And my boss just ripped me a new one when I went back after like the third or fourth time I'd had to leave work for this baby. And he didn't even allow me the opportunity to say like, this isn't my baby. My baby's doing great. But this is a baby who's come to us with special needs. And so I was just devastated. I was just in tears. And it just so happened that like 10 minutes after this, the concern commander called and she was like, hey, how's my favorite foster family? How are things going? And I just lost it. And I was like, I think I'm going to get fired from my position because my boss is really bad. And I don't know what to do because of course all those hormones are still going down anyway. You know, I just had a baby for heaven's sake. And uh, she's like, you know what? Let me talk to your boss. And so I was like, now this guy's like a GS 14 or 15. Like he's way up there. And I was like, um, sir, um, the commander's on the phone and would like to talk with you. And he comes over with this swagger and he picks up the phone and he's like, hello. And I see this, this, you know, probably 50, 60 year old man, like lock up into the position of attention. And I hear, yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. No, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. And he hangs up the phone and he looks at me and he's like, I don't care what you have to do. Don't even talk to me ever again. If I never see you here at work, that's fine. You just take care of that baby. I'm not going to cause any more problems. <laughs> and I was like, okay. <laughs> so it was a really, it was a really interesting experience because it was, it was lovely to be able to be the home to, to love and care for this baby who was, who was really going through a tough time, but there was so little support within the community for us until we had to like reach out and, and demand a little bit of help. So that was probably one of the more interesting experiences in my military careers was, was the adventure of being a foster parent. And how long did the baby stay with you? I think he was with us for, I want to say two months, two to three months. And then they sent him home and then they wanted to place him back with us. Things hadn't gone well at home, but we were PCSing. So we were no longer eligible to, to have the baby. I think that's a good reminder that we can do more than we think. I mean, you had a newborn and then a four month old and you were able to help as much as you guys could. That's just a really cool story and shows part of your heart and why you are the way you are. So my last question is going to be, what would you tell young women who are considering joining the military? So I think my advice, I put a lot of thought into this because I know you always ask the women on your podcast. Um, my advice would be to go about it very thoughtfully. 
there are inherent risks that you take when joining the military as a woman. And I'd be lying if I didn't address that. And if you're choosing on having a family soon, you know, having a family while on active service poses some challenges. They're not quite completely prepared for women in the military having having families. It can happen. You can make it work. But it's just something to think about, you know, if that's your dream. Are you going to be able to leave that child for a nine month deployment? You know, are you going to be able to to leave that child with your parents if both you and your spouse are in the military and deployed? However, the, the opportunities for growth and development that you get from serving in the military, you might never have in the civilian world. You have the opportunity to serve, to serve in capacities that you never thought possible, doing things that just 20 years ago were not even options for women in the military. The doors have opened up for us immensely. Um, that doesn't mean you're not going to have a battle to fight to, to prove that you deserve to be in that space because there are still leadership out there who don't believe women should be serving in the military. And I would also say, uh, similar to my experience while you're at MEPS, do not be afraid to say no if they're trying to force you into a job or an opportunity that you don't want or that you're not interested in while you're at MEPS. They tried and tried for me and I kept saying no. Um, make sure that everything that you want um, or that you're promised while you're at MEPS that you have in writing and that you have a copy of because sometimes those things don't always translate when you arrive at basic training. But if you have it in writing, they have to uphold it. And then don't be afraid to ask what bonuses are available. When I joined, they didn't have a whole lot of bonuses out there, but I, I just asked, I was like, hey, you got any bonuses? And they came up with like $7,000 worth of, of bonuses just because I'd asked about it. If I hadn't asked, they wouldn't have said anything about it. So go into it with your eyes wide open. And then um, if you do join the military, try to find um, a mentor or a sponsor because sometimes things will happen and you're not quite sure if it's appropriate or if it's thing, you know, just the way things are in the military or, or what you should do about it. And like for me, when I had that incident where I needed help because no one was training me to do the job I wanted, I went to a senior um, woman personnel and I asked for her help and she was absolutely there to help me know that like, hey, this isn't okay and we're going to take care of this. So having, you know, a, a senior level woman or woman veteran to help guide you through that career can make a huge difference. Yeah. One of the things that I'm working on behind the scenes is I want to create a mentorship type program that can help young women who are looking to join in be teamed up with a veteran because I've had the opportunity to mentor a few women who've, who are a little bit behind me or are looking to join the military and it's been so rewarding and I want to give that opportunity to more women. So if you're looking into the military, let me know. I have a lot of women that I can pair you up with and I'll get you connected with the right person. That's fantastic. It's just, it's rewarding for me. And re like as a veteran, it it's service and, you know, and one of the things that you mentioned, like the military, it opens doors up, but it's not just when you're in, when you leave the military, there's this whole group of veterans that are supporting you and encouraging you. And it's a really cool place to be. And I'm excited that after six years of being out of the military, I finally found it. And so, yeah, I, I agree. So, you know, I, I always joke that I had two transitions out of the service. The first one was getting out after my med board and taking care of my kids. That was transition number one. And in that transition, I was so alone. And I moved back to my home community where there really weren't many other women veterans around. So I just kind of took that part of myself and stuffed it in a hole and just focused on being mom. Um, but then when my kids got to a point where they didn't need me full time anymore, I went back to school and that was my second transition. And that one was really rough because this part, this huge part of what formed the woman I am, this veteran part had been stuffed in that hole for so long that pulling it out was almost a little painful. Um, but like you talked about, thanks to some great organizations out there like students 
Asian Veterans of America, High Ground Veteran Advocacy, uh, Veterans and Global Leadership, and the Travis Mannion Foundation for me were absolutely transformative. And they helped me not only find and define my veteran identity, but then once I had that, they laid out like this litany of opportunities like, hey, do you want to do this or this or this or this or this? And here's how we'll help support you as you go through that. And so those opportunities have really given my career a huge boost and and myself as a person as well, because this whole part of myself that had hidden away for so long was now free to shine. And uh, my life has been so much better since allowing that to be a part of my identity and being a whole person rather than someone kind of hiding it. Yeah, and that's a normal, I think I've heard it from a few people, men and women who kind of shove their like veteran piece and hide it. And for me, I definitely did. It's only been in the last year that I've started. And it was kind of like I was forced into it because I started talking (laughs) to women veterans about their experience. And like that wasn't part of the plan, but military spouses kept pushing me to do it. And so it's been really interesting because I definitely was like, nope, I'm a military spouse. Let's just forget about the veteran piece and not not really get involved in it's been a really cool year so that's great (laughs) thank you so much for being a guest on the podcast i really enjoyed hearing more about your experience and getting to learn a little bit more about you yeah thank you for the opportunity i really appreciate it Thank you for listening to this episode of Women of the Military. Make sure to subscribe so you don't miss any of the amazing stories I have with women who have served in our military. Did you love the show? Don't forget to leave a review. Finally, if you are a woman who has served or is currently serving in the military, please email me at airmantomom at gmail.com so I can set you up to be on a future episode of Women of the Military. Women of the Military.